Thank you, Mary and Toby. Would you allow me just for a moment to um, tell you how um, honored I am to be uh, standing here today before you? I've preached some in my life, not a lot, which you probably already know that. I do like to teach the Bible, though. It's it is a joy. Um, but uh, I am officially starting today your associate pastor, and I'm actually going to get paid for preaching today. <laughs> so this is a first for me, and um, after today, I don't know if it'll be the last time, but... Wow, 2017. Can you believe it? Amazing. Amazing. Today we're going to be using Psalm 1 as our text. So if you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 1. I'll be reading that. I'm going to be reading six verses, these six verses of this amazing, amazing scripture. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And his leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Words on a page. Black ink on white paper. An undiscernible message. Not hardly. Not for the followers of Christ. When I look at these verses, I see words of understanding. I see words of wisdom. I see words of encouragement. And I see words of instruction. I see words of direction. And I see words of distinction. I see words that set the tone and the gateway into the rest of this amazing book. You want to be a blessed Christian today? Start here. You want to be a joyful Christian? Start here. You want to be a growing Christian? Start here. Verse 1 says, How blessed or happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. And I personally prefer the word blessed over the word happy. In our culture, we say, Happy New Year. What are we saying? We're saying that we want all of the circumstances in your life to be happy, to be joyful. Happiness is usually tied in our culture to our circumstances, is it not? I'm happy if what happens to me is good. I'm not happy when what happens to me is not good. We use the expression, I'm not a happy camper. That's not the kind of happy the psalmist is talking about here. 
The word blessed speaks of one's state or condition rather than a feeling. I'm pretty sure Abraham and Moses and David and Paul and even Jesus weren't happy about every single circumstance they were in. What about the thousands of men and women down through the ages who have suffered for their Christian faith? Nothing happy about those circumstances. The distinction is no matter what one's circumstances in life, we can, and I would add we should, experience a state or condition of blessedness. The famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, or he calls it this way, Oh, the blessedness, regardless of one's circumstances. Regardless of one's circumstances. The word blessed in the Septuagint, which is basically the Greek translation of the Old Testament, on this word, blessed, is to be makarios, M-A-K-R-I-O-S. It describes the man who is fully satisfied, especially in the spiritual sense. That's what he's talking about here. Now, if there's one thing I know about, it's about it's that I'm, I sometimes struggle with not being satisfied. Now, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, because I know you know what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. This happened many years ago, but it's happened, it's happened before. But way back uh, in the 60s, I got my first car. I'm telling you, I was so proud of that car. I'd saved my money and I'd borrowed the rest from my grandmother. It was $1,200. It was a 63 Pontiac Le Mans. Now, you probably don't know what that car looks like, but I've got a perfect picture of it in my brain. This car was a two-door coupe. It was burgundy with black interior, four on the floor. It was a beautiful car. And like I always used to do, on Saturday morning, I would get up and I would detail that. I don't mean just run a hose over it. I mean, I'm in there with Q-tips cleaning out all the little vent outlets. I mean, it was immaculate. So this particular Saturday, I was, I was under the sycamore tree. We actually did have sycamore trees. And in our car, we would park under it, and I would detail it. And I was just looking at it, and I was so proud and so satisfied with it. I was just so eager to get in it, drive it, and show it off to my friends and and take my friends for drives in it. I just love that car. And then suddenly I heard the sound that sounded really cool, like dual exhaust. And I turned around, and down the street comes a brand-new 1967 black Stingray. And I stand there with my mouth open, and the drool is coming down on both sides. And I'm thinking... And then I'm looking at my car, I'm looking at the Corvette, I'm looking at Little Mons and the, and the Stingray, and I'm thinking, well, Lord, I really want that car. That car was, if you can believe this, a brand new Corvette in 1967 was $4,800. I can afford that today. <laughs> Unfortunately, those cars are about $64,000 now. Well, Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, not that I speak from want, 
For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You see the word there? Circumstances. And he uses this word twice in these two verses. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. This is something that he had learned. And these words are so much more than just good advice. The contentment Paul had was not based on his circumstances. Now, in this first verse, we see two sources of counsel. We see godly counsel, which is consistent with the word of God. And we see wicked counsel, which is consistent with the word of man. We don't have to look very far to find either one of these today, do we? Where can we find godly counsel? Well, I would suggest that you start with the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible, godly counsel, the Word of God. We can also find godly counsel from pastors, from elders, from deacons, from missionaries, from Sunday school teachers, from books, from films, from television, from radio, from the Internet, from friends and family. Yes, we can get godly advice and godly wisdom from these sources. Well, guess what? We can also find wicked counsel from the same sources if we're not careful. If you pick up the Bible and you read Scripture and you get the wrong interpretation or you take something out of context, you're going to be misinformed. You're going to be led astray. Sometimes there are worldly pastors, believe it or not. There are pastors that will take you down the wrong path. There are elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and missionaries who lead us down the wrong path. There are books and films and televisions and things that we see that influence us. Radio, the internet. These things can give us worldly or ungodly counsel. We have to be careful. So how do we know if our source of counsel is godly or not? Is it godly or wicked? Well, the Bible says... In 2 Timothy 2.15, accurately handling the word of truth is how we know if it's godly counseling. Proverbs 3 says, God will direct our paths if we acknowledge him. To whom or what are we leaning on for our counsel? Do you realize that there are actually people that get up every day Go out and get their newspaper, and the very first thing they want to know is their horoscope. There are people like that. I've known people like that. Oh, it told me I was going to have this today, or I should do that today. And that's, what they, that's their counsel, is their horoscope. How about the local palm reader? You ever seen a sign in the window, a neon sign, local palm reader? I wonder where all the palm readers and the soothsayers were, and the people that could read the future were on September the 10th, 2001. I wonder where they were. They sure didn't predict that. What happened the next day? What about Reader's Digest? I like Reader's Digest, but is that really a place you want to go to get a godly counsel? How about Dr. Phil? Here's my favorite of all. How about movie stars? They have all the answers, don't they? All you have to do is turn on your television set, and there's the movie stars telling you what to think and what to believe, who to follow, who to vote for. Sometimes knowing which path to take is not always clearly marked, though, is it? 
No matter if we have an analytical mind or an intuitive mind, it can be difficult. Amazingly, though, the Bible does, however, give us clear direction on those truly important decisions in life. The things that are really important, the things we really want to know. It gives us great instruction and godly counsel. Look in your Bibles at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. I want to read you a couple of verses from what Paul said about godly counsel and about a command about how we're supposed to live. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He says, do not be bound with these people. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. We're not supposed to be bound with them. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be a blessed Christian, don't be bound together in a relationship with unbelievers. It's pretty straightforward. It's not a mystery. I understand that. We shouldn't be bound with people in business and certainly not in marriage. Wicked counsel says, this is what wicked counsel says when it comes to, to marrying someone. If you love each other, that's all that matters. Go ahead and marry him. God will eventually change his heart. Have you ever heard that before? I have. Well, yeah, God will work it out. God will save his or her mind and heart. God will do the miraculous thing. Well, don't count on it. Let me give you a tip for a Christian. If you're contemplating dating someone, for the first question that should pop into your little mind is, this person a believer... And do they demonstrate their belief by how they walk? Does their lifestyle honor God? That should be the first question you ask. And I guarantee you, your mom and dad are asking that question. If you bring home someone, that's a... Well, how long have you known Christ? Are you living the godly life? These are questions that are pretty important. I'm afraid many of us, however, know all too well... The heavy price paid for following wicked counsel. Consider for a moment Moses' warning to the Israelites before entering the promised land. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 1 through 4. Once again, this is not ambiguous. This is pretty clear cut. God tells them what to do. And obviously, they disobey. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, what does it say? Greater and stronger than you, 
And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. What does destroy mean? You ever destroyed anything in your life? I destroyed that 1963 Pontiac Le Mans. It was toast. It was no more. You couldn't use it for anything. That's what he's telling these people to do. Kill these people. That's what God's telling them to do. Wipe them out. Don't let them intermarry with your children. Let's read on. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That's the reason. He tells them the command and then he backs it up with, here's why. This is what's going to happen. You know what? That's exactly what happened. There's nothing ambiguous about this. There was no confusion as what they were supposed to do. Yet they did it anyway. How many people today are suffering because they listened to wicked counsel and made choices that they knew were antithetical to what the Bible was teaching? How many people do that? It breaks your heart. And yet it happens all the time. Notice in Psalm verse 1, we can see what the blessed or the happy person does not do. We can see a casual, slowing progression in this person's life. He doesn't walk and then stand and then sit. Notice walking, standing, sitting. The blessed man, the blessed man doesn't walk with wicked counsel. He doesn't seek worldly advice. Be careful who and what you listen to. The blessed man doesn't stand with sinners. His associations are not all worldly. Be careful who you hang with. Have you ever heard the expression, birds of a feather flock together? I've been around a while and I've seen a lot of geese fly south in the winter and north in the summer. I've never seen them fly with an eagle or a parrot or any other kind of bird. They just kind of flock together. You hang around people like that, and guess what? You're going to become a person like that. The blessed man doesn't sit with scoffers or mockers or ridiculers. Why? Because it leads to worldly attitudes. Seeing from that point of view, you know, when you're sitting, sitting means you're in a place of influence, typically. You remember Lot? Where did we find Lot? Right before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Where was he? Where was he? He was sitting in the gate. He was sitting there. He had a, a, a position of influence. So be careful. Let me just say this. Let's be totally honest here while we're on the subject. Would it really be a shock to see the blessed man actually walking with wicked counsel and standing with sinners and sitting with scoffers? Let me ask you some rhetorical questions. Do we not all tend to lose our way sometimes? Yes. Isn't it true our flesh controls us from time to time? Yes. Isn't it true we do or say things occasionally that hurt other people? Yes. Isn't it true we don't always bring help and comfort to someone when we should have, when we knew better? 
Yes. The difference is, as Christians, we don't live there. We don't walk there, we don't stand there, and we don't sit there. It's not our way of life. Not consistently anyway. As Christians, when this does happen, we realize we're not where we're supposed to be. And quickly get up. We confess our sins. We ask for forgiveness and return to walking in the Spirit and grace of God. Haven't you ever been in a place or a situation where you felt out of place? (laughs) Well, I have. I don't think I'm supposed to be here. Haven't you felt that way before? I don't know. I couldn't give you an illustration, but I can imagine an office party where everybody is stinking drunk. It's just an occasion to come see how much, how many shots of tequila they can drink. And all of a sudden you realize that everybody around you is uninhibited. They're getting so drunk they don't have control of their speech or their actions. And you, as a Christian, you realize, you know, I might want to step back from that. I think I'll go back home. Because I don't belong there. Does anybody ever say amen anymore? <laughs> I've, I've been there before. Not at the drunken party, but <laughs> I've said amen before. How about what? <clears throat> How about getting cut off? You're driving along just fine. Someone just cuts right in front of you, and then they slow down to get off. I'm thinking, well, you don't want, no, you don't want to know what I'm thinking. <laughs> I don't live there. Every time I get behind the wheel, I'm not cursing and yelling at other people. I know people that do that. I don't like to ride with them, but I know people that they get upset about every little thing. We don't live there. That's not our life. How about when you hear about someone needing help moving? And you realize, well, I, I, it's my only day off, and I don't really, I'm, I'm basically too lazy. Why didn't I go there after it's all? I should have gone there. I've learned over the years that we tend to do what we want to do. Yes, we've all been there, but the blessed man doesn't live there. We don't live there. Yes, that happens in our life, but not something that you would describe a Christian, the blessed man, doing. In verse 2, the Bible says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates occasionally. Has it ever occurred to you that you can meditate on God on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Wednesdays? And You don't have to wait till Sunday to read the Bible and to meditate on God. Isn't that amazing? We can meditate on Him anytime. The blessed man now moves from the negative to the positive. Notice the very first word in this second verse is but. It's an expression implying a strong contrast. Like we would say, on the contrary. For an example, John is always faithful to pray. On the contrary, Joe never does. His delight is not Not his duty, his delight, not his duty is in the law of the Lord. He doesn't meditate because he has to. He meditates because he wants to. This is where he goes to receive pleasure. This is where he goes to experience happiness in the truth of God. An inner joy that manifests itself in our attitudes and actions. 
the law of the Lord for this psalm writer. Many people believe it was David. I believe it was David wrote Psalm 1, but you realize the law of the Lord he's talking about here is the only law that they had at the time, and that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, and Deuteronomy. Imagine delighting yourself in the book of Leviticus. Have you spent much time there? It's actually a very amazing book if you let the Lord show you. It is. Or Numbers. Well, there were 7,300 and so and so. I mean, it can be monotonous, but it doesn't have to be. But that's what he was delighting in. The law of the Lord. What do we have? Well, we have the law of Christ. What are the two laws that we are to follow? Only two. Love God and love our neighbor. That's it. Can we meditate on that? Can we meditate on loving God? Can we feed on that? Can we uh, exercise ourselves mentally with our hearts and our minds on Christ's love for us and our love for Him and love for our neighbor? I think we can. This is where we should go to meditate. Not just reading God's Word, but feeding on it. Getting your life from it, your spiritual life from it. To whom we listen to, what books we read, what programs we watch on television, and how we spend our time have a direct influence on what we think about and meditate on. Personally, unless it affects me, however, I don't give some things much thought at all. Who has the best soccer team in the world? Don't know, don't care. Don't care to know. What is the price? What is the price of eggs in Slovakia? I don't really care. I have no, I don't meditate on it. I wonder what the price of eggs are today in Slovakia. No, I don't do that. What's the water temperature of the Guadalupe River today? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not planning on getting in it, going swimming, so I don't really care. I don't think about that. How long will it take to fly to the Virgin Islands? Well, I don't know, but I bet Harold and Gina know. (laughs) They're going. Would you take me, please? (laughs) What What we fill our minds with, what we meditate on is important. The Bible actually gives us, if you can believe this, if you don't know it's here, then you're going to know after this. The Bible actually gives us a list of what's important for us to meditate on. It's found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent and if any worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. That's what we're supposed to be meditating on. These things. He lists them for us. What am I supposed to be thinking about? Well, here you go. This will get you started. What is true? What is true? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Dwell on Jesus. Dwell on the truth of Jesus, you see. I encourage you to guard yourselves. What we take in... What we see is constantly being recorded, our thoughts and our images. What we see, we're taking in. This can be a good thing. This can be a not-so-good thing. There are certain images I don't want to see. 
Some images are nearly impossible to erase. And all God's people nodded their head. Yes, we see things. I didn't want to see that. I didn't want to hear that. And sometimes it takes a while to get rid of them out of our minds. Now, because the blessed man follows this path, because of this, we have verse 3. He will be like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The psalmist uses the metaphor of a tree to describe this kind of a man. This is not any tree. This is not a West Texas tumbleweed. I can tell you about West Texas tumbleweeds. Not that I'm a know-it-all about that or anything, but I can tell you of a certain trip that my wife and I took. I don't know if we were going out to Angel Fire or Sedona or somewhere in Colorado, but one time we drove out in West Texas. And if you're from there, God bless you. I, uh, my family's from El Dorado, if you know where that is. That's where... The, the mother's side of my family, where they all came from. And we were on our way up there one time, and the wind started blowing. And we started seeing these weeds, just these tumbleweeds, just start going in front of us. And then the dust picked up. I mean, it was so thick you could hardly see in front of your car. If you've ever been there at a certain time of the year when this happens, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We had to stop for gasoline. And I got out, and as I got out, the dust just falls out of the, the door. And I'm over there, I've got a, a handkerchief on my, my mouth, and I'm putting gas in the car. And I go in there and talk to the little lady, and I said, uh, how do you people live here? The tumbleweeds and, and all the, 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 the dirt and everything blowing around, the dust everywhere. And she looked at me, and she said, oh, you just get used to it after a while. <laughs> I'm going back to Kerrville. <laughs> Whether we just have cedar fever down there. It's not describing a tumbleweed. They tumble in whichever direction the wind's blowing, don't they? The wind's coming from the north, they're heading south. If it's coming from the south, they're going north. They just blow where they go roll wherever the wind's blowing. Verse three is not describing a tumbleweed. It's not even, think about it for a moment, it's not even describing a tree. It's describing a planted tree. In other words, a transplanted tree. Why? Why is this plant, this tree, being taken from where it's at and put by the water? Duh. Because that's what's going to give it life. It's going to be planted where the streams of life are. It'll grow. This tree was chosen. This tree was hand-picked and moved close to the water. It was chosen for the purpose of yielding fruit. Matthew 15, 13 says, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. This plant or tree will not be uprooted because it was chosen, you see. This plant was transplanted. It was chosen. This particular tree is destined to produce its natural fruit. 
Now, not all trees, pr- trees produce edible fruit. But all trees do have a purpose, do they not? For which they were made. However, I have my doubt about chinaberry and hackberry trees. I don't, I don't understand their purpose. But, you know, every tree that we have has a purpose. I think of the red oak tree. What's a red oak tree good for? Oh, my goodness, the best shade in July you can think of. At our restaurant in the middle of the parking lot, I've got three red oaks. I planted them seven years ago. I think they've grown about two feet. They're real slow growing. Now they're probably about, I don't know, they're probably 12 feet high. But you can see it in July. People park their cars as close as they can to it. Now, by the time I get out, it'll be in the shade. So they're excellent trees for shade. Some trees are, their purpose is for strength. For example, you know what an Italian cypress tree is? It's a very tall, stately tree. And usually if you want to block the wind, you would plant several of them in a row. And they're good for protecting against the wind. Some trees are made for wood. I remember when I was a little kid, I was wondering, well, where, are all these, uh, where are all these telephone poles coming from? Several years later, we went on a trip to East Texas and it occurred to me, Oh, yeah, there's like miles and miles of these pine trees, and that's where they're coming from. Some trees are made for the purpose of beauty, floral, their aroma. You can't hardly beat a Bradford pear in the springtime. That's a beautiful, beautiful tree. Notice right in the middle of this verse, the psalmist drops the metaphor of a tree, and then he goes to a man. He changes from a tree to a man. And he says, whatever he does, he prospers. Whatever he does, he prospers. Why is he prospering? Because he was chosen, transplanted, and put by the rivers of life. That's why. Who's doing the transplanting here? Well, it wasn't him. It wasn't me. It's not you. It's the Lord, you see. That's why he's doing so well. Whatever he does, he prospers. This man is blessed because he is producing spiritual fruit. His spiritual life is not all dried up. It's not all withered. It's not uh, brown, but it's green. This man is demonstrating perseverance in his life. He doesn't wither. He's an evergreen. Now look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. This is very important. Don't miss this contrast. These are two entirely different paths taken. It took three verses to describe the godly path and only two words to describe the ungodly path. He uses the words, not so. He's been talking about the blessings that this man has Because he's seeking wise counsel, he's not doing certain things and he is doing other things that he should be doing. But he says, not so the wicked. This person has taken a different path. They walk in the counsel of the wicked. They stand in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of the scornful. They are not like firmly planted trees. They are not bearing spiritual fruit. They are not remaining green in time of drought. They are not spiritually prosperous in all they do. That's why. They've taken a different path. The Bible says, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. 
They're going a different way. John 15:5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Think about that for a moment. Apart from Christ as Christians, we can't do anything. How powerful is that? You know who said that? Christ, our, our Savior, said that. He says he was divine. He is divine. The psalmist now uses another metaphor to describe the wicked. He uses the word chaff. What's the chaff? After the good stuff is taken, that's all that's left. The chaff has no value. It's tossed in the air to be blown away. It's the refuse. It's easily moved. It's easily gathered and burned and completely annihilated. Chaff, just like the tumbleweed, worthless. Just like the tumbleweed. It's at the mercy of the wind. What's interesting is those who don't believe in Satan are the same ones being driven by him. Do you see the, how ironic is that? People that don't, well, I don't believe in all that mess. Yeah, well, guess what? He's the one that's pushing you around like a tumbleweed because you have no roots. You have no greenness in you. Verse 5 and 6, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Therefore, based on what's been said, here is the conclusion. That's what he's saying by the word therefore in verse 5. Based on what's been said already, he is making a final conclusion. It's important to get this. He's saying the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it means. It means they will not be absent from judgment. It means they will not stand justified. It means they will not be able to endure judgment. It means they will not have an adequate defense because there is no defense without Christ. Do you see that? Notice the word for or because. He gives us the reason again. The distinction between the righteous and the wicked is also stated in their ultimate eternal destination. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Not only will the wicked perish, but their way will die as well. The way of the wicked will die. Sadly, most people today reject this. They don't believe that. They believe we're all going to go to heaven. I don't know what book they're reading, but that's not what the Bible teaches me. I'm telling you, the Bible, if you believe the Bible, if you believe in God, you can't stand there and tell me that everybody's going to heaven. It's not going to happen. They are terribly wrong. Because their source of counsel is ungodly. Maybe it's themselves. Well, I just believe. Well, you know, that's no basis for your belief. I just feel like it. Feeling has nothing to do with it. Proverbs 14.12 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It seems right. 
Why would God do that? Why would God send someone to hell for, for eternity? It doesn't seem right to me. Well, it's right to God. And it seems right to some. Psalm 1. These are not just words on a page, black ink on white paper, but words of life. I urge you to consider the words of Psalm 1 this year. Meditate on their counsel. Let's pray. Father, what joy it is to meditate on the Word of God, to think that You have taken us and planted us by the streams of living water. Thank You for the growth that You give us, for the love that You provide for us. May we honor You with our lives in all that we say and do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.